Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. And here we are once again with Sven Longshanks and Bible Basics Part 10. What we have tried to give a, a general overview of the Christian identity understanding of Scripture from Genesis all the way through the, the Gospels and the letters of Paul, I believe, last week in part nine. Now, this evening, we are going to discuss the revelation of Jesus Christ, or as we prefer, Yahshua Christ. And the revelation is probably one of the most, it's probably the most misunderstood book in the history of man. It barely made it into the what we know today as the Bible. It's quite fortuitous that it did because it certainly belongs in our Bible. And gives us, along with some of the parables of Christ, a full understanding of the entire scriptures from the very beginning because you can't understand Genesis without understanding Revelation, and you can't understand the gospel in, in its entirety without understanding the Revelation. The Revelation is the last key to scriptural understanding and the identity of the people of God. Thank, thank you for being here, Sven. Good morning. Hi, Bill. Yes. Uh, yeah. Glad, glad to be here once again, and we're up to uh, episode 10. I think we've really quite thoroughly gone through all the most important parts of the the christian identity understanding of the world based based on the bible really apart from uh, the book of revelation and as you say it's uh, it's one of the really important books uh, up there with genesis i would say it, it was always one of my favorite ones just because of the just because of the imagery that's in it and i think it's in the right place at the bible as well at, at the end of the bible where it talks about what what there is to come and it talks about what happened to the church as well and and i think it's important to show the christian identity version of it because the judeo-christians have this idea of of the rapture that they're all going to go off and they're all going to disappear off up to heaven before the end of the world comes and these crazy ideas that they have and and one of the one of uh, the most important bits, I think, one of the most important verses is where Christ says that he's going to slay all the children of fornication. And he points out that uh, Jezebel has, this this woman Jezebel has been committing adultery. And he's quite clearly talking about race mixing. So race mixed people aren't going to be whisked off up to heaven in the rapture. They're, they're going to be slayed with a sword of death, I think is, is the actual quote that, that Christ uses there. And of course, it's also very, it's also very clear that it's, it's only talking about the tribes of Israel here as well and nobody else. And the, and the, uh, and, and the saints, that's another way that they refer to the children of Israel. And of course, the serpent and the flood that comes out of the mouth of the serpent to wash the woman away, drown the woman away and the, and the camp of the saints. All, all of this imagery that's used in there is, it's all racial. And it's all quite clearly can only be referring to 
uh, one people. And I know you, you've written a whole book on this, concentrating on this, which I know brought together previous um, Christian identity scholars' research into this and, and then adding your own to it. And I know you've gone into this in quite quite a lot of detail before in previous podcasts. I know you did one years back with Eli James, and I know you've done another one with, um, uh, I forget it, Don Fox as well. So it would be good if we can just get like an, an an overall idea of it for people that are new to Christian identity, because I know a lot of a lot of people that are new to it have listened listened to this series, and it's been really helpful with giving them um, the basics, basically the foundations of Christian identity, so that they can then go back and and look at it in more detail along with your other podcasts. So I'm I'm looking forward to hearing you try to sort of condense it down into the basics today, Bill. Well, I hope I could do it successfully. I don't have any notes to work from. I, I, I'm sort of um, on my own right now. I'm not complaining, but that's just the way it should be probably. But the Revelation, first, the, the book of the Revelation, it, it answers many open questions that were left in Genesis, and it also interlocks with many of the prophecies found in Daniel found in Zechariah. If you um, go to my my interpretation of the minor prophet Zechariah, you'll basically notice that my one of my assertions are that Zechariah is the prophet of the Revelation, that a lot of the things he prophesied are repeated in the Revelation. The Revelation expands on those things, but the revelation mirrors Zechariah in many ways, and Zechariah's prophecy helps us to understand the revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ is not based on a Christianity that began in 33 AD or in 30 AD, whenever you want to believe the crucifixion happened. It, it, Christianity began in the Garden of Eden with Adam. and. The entire Old Testament is Christianity before Christ. Now, the Levitical kingdom and the Levitical, Levitical laws were imposed upon man for a specific reason. And that reason is that ultimately God knew that man would fail to keep that law. God wanted to prove to man that man could not justify himself through legalism and of course it 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 man failed that the israelites were not able to maintain their kingdom through legalism that there is um they, they, they were infiltrated and subverted in many ways by their enemies they themselves were taken off into all sorts of sin and 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 had this attitude of self-righteousness. This attitude of self-righteousness is discussed in the Revelation, and we see it again today with Judeo-Christians, that they go to church and they they um partake in their little communion and they have their little baptisms and their altar calls. So they're self-righteous that they think that they're saved be, because they had a baptism in, in a river somewhere or or in a Catholic cathedral. They believe that they're saved just for that, for what they did. 
and and they don't have to follow God's law, and and that leads to those rituals. The accomplishment of those rituals lead to self righteousness, and the revelation even discusses that. It, it's um, the the revelation interlocks with Genesis. It interlocks with Daniel. It interlocks with Zechariah to draw a fuller picture of the the hand of God in the history of man and point man to the true path of righteousness, which is simply um, loving one's brother and keeping the law and the, the law, which is in the commandments of Christ. The revelation is a series of warnings and, and prophecies that have unfolded in history and a series of warnings of what is going to happen and whether it's past or future depends upon the point in history where you are reading it, because it's a prophecy, and prophecy depicts things that are going to happen in the future from the time that the prophecy was written. But today, a lot of those things are already in the past, and, and we could give them a, a brief survey if you would like. Well, I think um, you know, revelation. It means to reveal, anyway, doesn't it? it? Means to to reveal something. So it's revealing what's what's happened in the past, I think, and what's happening in the future. Especially when time is cyclical <laughs> and things repeat themselves, and you get you get smaller versions of something happening and larger versions of something happening. But yeah, I think that would be a great idea to to go back through some of some of these prophecies that we, that we can see that Revelations is talking about. Well. well the, the prophet Daniel described a series of beast empires that would rule over men. And, and the revelation talks about um, a dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. And those seven heads in the revelation that they basically represent seven empires where Daniel only discussed four and that's because the scope of the revelation includes Daniel's prophecy and doesn't um, dissolve it or, or refute it or contradict it in any way. But the revelation has a greater scope where Daniel's prophecy had a narrower scope that there's um, very much to these prophecies. They are all absolutely true. They prove the hand of God in history. They prove the providence of God. They prove that there is a God. They prove that Jesus Christ is, or at least represents that God. And that this can't be denied, but in order to accept it, you have to have a, a thorough understanding of both the prophecy, the symbolism used, and the history. And all the symbolism used in the Revelation, practically all of it, comes from the Old Testament. It's all in the Old Testament. The Revelation is a racial book about the same people who were the subjects of the Old Testament. In chapter 15, they're singing the Song of Moses. In, in Revelation chapter 1, that they are um, what we see language describing these people in the opening chapters of Revelation, which, which is um, identical to language found in Daniel and Zechariah. And, and depictions of historical events, which have the same subjects and the same symbolism 
as that's found in Daniel and Zechariah and, and even in Genesis. In, so, in Revelation, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, so, so, so it's almost like the language which is used that, that people have learned how to decipher in Genesis and in Daniel and, and elsewhere, then that is used to the book of Revelation to the book of Revelation to then help decipher what is being said in, in Revelation. Right. And and right, exactly. The revelation helps us decipher portions of the Old Testament, but the Old Testament helps us decipher portions of the revelation. They go hand in hand. There's no such thing as a New Testament Christian. That term is an oxymoron. The entire basis of the New Testament is found in the Old Covenant. And and you can't have one without the other. And so many um, interpreters attempt to interpret Genesis without understanding the New Testament, or they attempt to interpret the Revelation apart from the Old Testament, and they're just kidding themselves. They're just that they're just clowns who 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 are fooling themselves. That's one of the proofs that it's holy, isn't it? That, that it's that this scripture is holy. And you think uh, that the great length of time that it was written over, you think of all the different people that were writing it, and the fact that it, it all locks together to make a complete, a complete whole that is in, interreferential, referencing it, to things going on at the beginning, at the end, things referencing it at the beginning to what's going on at the end, and it and it all interlocks together, and that would just be impossible to do if it, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit guiding all these authors well absolutely that that's absolutely true and and i absolutely believe that the hand of god was behind that the um writing of all of these books i mean there are a lot of books that are spurious that don't belong in in the scripture but these that these um the king james bible has 66 books 65 of them are legitimate and there were probably a dozen more that should have been in there. I'm, I'm just guessing, but I could name several of them. There could be a dozen more that should have been in there, or, or that are, are, we may recognize some of the names like Jasher, but in their current versions, they are corrupted. And for that reason, some of them aren't in there, but others like the Wisdom of Solomon and the, the um, one Enoch or, or the portions of Enoch that we know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, if they were complete, that they should have been in Scripture. And they're not. And and even those have suffered interpolations and and have other problems. Poor, poor, um, poor scribal practices because those books were basically disregarded. That the critics, Jewish um higher criticism i don't know why they call it higher criticism it's really gutter criticism jewish higher criticism and critical theory which is brought to us by the jews tries to deconstruct all of these books but the jews can't understand these books and even christ had told us that the jews can't understand the things that he says what we rely on these Jewish commentators 
to help us understand Christianity because we had this view historically that Christianity is Jewish when Christianity isn't Jewish at all, as we know um, these Jews of today, these Jews of today are not Israelites or Hebrews or even Judah and have no capacity in, in their worldly materialistic view of, of mode of, of thinking, which is natural to them. They have no capacity to understand these books, truly. And because they insist that their identity is the exclusive um, identity of the people of the Old Testament, they can never understand them. They hated Paul of Tarsus right from the beginning. They hated Christ. They have no authority to comment on what Christianity is or to define what Christianity is. And, and they have no authority to try to interpret any of these books. So the last people that we should turn to for interpretations of the New Testament is Jews, and the same is true of the Old Testament. And Paul of Tarsus explained that. Paul of Tarsus explained that the people that we know today as Jews are blind when they read Moses that they can't understand it. So they have no business trying, and Christians have no business um seeking the advice of Jews in order to understand these things. It's that simple. Well, they, they end up um, inventing numerical codes for the words, don't they? Because they can't understand it. And then they, they add all the numbers up for a word and they say, well, any other word that comes to that, that same sum of the numbers, that's what it really means. I mean, that, that's what the Kabbalah is. They just, they just in, invent uh, things to add to it on top of it rather than actually taking what it, what it actually says. They, they, they and, I think they're barred from understanding it, aren't they? Really, they can't understand it. They're bastards. And, they can't even say Yahweh. They can't even say Yahweh because, you know, an illegitimate son is not allowed to use the name of a father. A bastard is not allowed to to use the name of of a father because he's not a lawful son. And they can't even say Yahweh, so they can't understand it. Well, well, that's very true to an extent. But with Judaism, everything becomes relative, and all concrete truth falls apart. And in that manner, the Jew becomes his own God. That's the basis for humanism. That's the core of Freemasonry, that man can rise to the position of God, where true Christianity understands that God lowered himself to the position of man for the sake of his creation. And, and it's the polar opposite to the, the Jewish mindset. And the Jews can never understand it. One of the um, major critics, one of the major criticisms of the Revelation are, are who wrote it and when it was written. There are many, many early Christian writers who attested that John had set the Revelation down in writing after his release from Patmos on, on the death of, of the emperor that, that had put him there. I, I believe that was Domitian. I, for some reason in, in my mind, I always get Domitian and Diocletian confused, but that was Domitian was assassinated, was killed in 96 AD. Domitian had um, relegated John to Patmos and forced him to, to stay there. And upon his death, upon the death of a Roman emperor, all such decrees were nullified. 
and John was able to return to Ephesus, and that's where he wrote the Revelation. John was a very young man during the ministry of Christ. He may have been as, as young as 16 years old. He was a youth. He was described as a youth. And if he was 16 at the, at the, in 30 AD, then in 96 AD, he's only 60 years or, or, or 66 years older than 16. He's only in his early 80s. So that it's not implausible that John wrote the Revelation in Ephesus after 96 AD. Or, or right around 96 AD or, or thereabouts. So that's the testimony of at least a half dozen of the earliest Christian writers from the second, third, fourth centuries. And the revelation itself professes that this is the John who bore witness to the word of God, which means that this is the John who wrote the gospel of John. And it certainly is which he considered to be the word which became flesh. He's using, in his opening of the Revelation, he's using language which points right to the opening of his gospel, proving that he's the same John, that the author of the Revelation is the same John who wrote the gospel. And in early Christian times, that was never challenged, not so far as I've ever read. All of the early Christian writers understood this to be the same John as the John that wrote the gospel, as well as the John who wrote the epistles. The Jewish method of higher criticism is basically to separate all of these things to deconstruct in, with, with the end purpose of deconstructing Christianity because they have to cover for themselves. They that these books, Jude, they tried to get rid of Jude ever since the second century. Marcion tried to get rid of Jude, tried to get rid of Second Peter. They tried to, many of the early so-called church fathers were, were poisoned against those books, those little epistles, and they tried to get rid of the revelation. And they did that because these books expose the nature of the Jew more than any others in the New Testament. Yeah, Jude Second and St. Peter, Peter, Jude, and the Revelation. Both really I'm good. Sorry. Jude, and, Jude and St. Peter are both excellent books. I mean, the whole of Jude is 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 talking about the <laughs> fallen angels and, and how they're still here and how they've crept in among the um, the, the right. feasts that they have, the brute, brute beasts that calls them. And they're among us today. Evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed, right? They're among us today. And, and these three books are, are instrumental in understanding that. These three books are instrumental in understanding our Christian identity um, interpretation of Scripture. But the Scripture cannot be understood. These three books can't be understood without the rest of Scripture. And the rest of Scripture really can't be understood without the revelation. And that's because Christ said, Christ in, in Matthew chapter 13 gave us the parable of the wheat and the tares and people marveled at it, that there was wheat that God sowed and, and tares that the devil sowed among them right from the very beginning. People marveled at that because 
people, even back then, simply took it for granted that God created everybody. They believed it back then. Yahweh created all things, but Yahweh created all things that he took credit for creating. <laughs> and those things are permanent, but there are things that man has corrupted. And Yahweh can't be accredited with sin. When you see a bastard, that's the result of the sin of man. Maybe Yahweh understood well ahead of time that that bastard was going to exist because that man was going to commit that sin. But you can't blame that on God just because he knew it was going to happen. The evil things that happen are actually the results of the sins of men and, and or, or the punishment for their sins. But you can't blame that on God. So, so there's a whole, um, <clears throat> you have to get yourself into a whole mindset of Christian thought and really think a lot of these things out before you can even start to interpret these prophecies. So. Christ gives the parable of the wheat and the tares, which basically tell his listeners that a lot of the people here in the world came from the devil, were not created by God. And then he says that he came to speak things which were kept secret purposely or accidentally. It doesn't matter whether God purposely wanted these things kept secret or whether the scribes purposely hid these things at an early time, or whether, and this is what I believe, whether Yahweh God used the evil of the scribes to ensure that these things were kept secret, because he didn't want to reveal his truth until this particular time. And, and that's what that's the interpretation that I believe, because God uses the evil of men in order to accomplish his will very often in Scripture. These things were kept secret until Christ had revealed them, and his revelation of them is in his parables and in the revelation itself. So, you can't understand Genesis all by itself. If you have the words of Christ who revealed those things kept secret from the foundation of the world, now you can interpret Genesis and, and the Old Testament, the other Old Testament prophets. Now you can make those interpretations and, and be a hell of a lot more sure of the validity of those interpretations when the revelation in Genesis and the parables all interlock into a consistent matrix of Christian thought. Because you could have spotted some of these things before. I mean, they could have spotted these things in the past, but they wouldn't have been certain about them until, until right. finally you get that revelation. And, and also I think, you know, I mean, what, where it tells us this is what God created and it tells us that that, that, was, that was all good. And yet there are other things. So whatever other things there are in the world, they, they can't have been created by God because they're not listed in, in, in that book. It's not like the Bible is going to tell us the things that the devil created. Right. And it's absolutely. not going to go into that. And it doesn't. It doesn't tell us the things that the devil created. It doesn't 
tell us the things that the devil corrupted. And, and we, we have to qualify this. A lot of people say, oh, the devil can't create anything. And we're not really saying that the devil had, had spoken these things into existence like God did. The sin of the devil was to corrupt the creation of God. That's the sin of the fallen angels. That is the sin of the fallen angels as it's described not only in Jude, but in, in, in the Enoch literature. It's very clear that the devil, that these rebels, these fallen angels, who, who, these people who rebelled against God, their act of rebellion was to corrupt elements of his creation. That was the act, actual act of rebellion. And we see that corruption continue in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapters 3 and 6 are, are sins, are describing sins of a sexual nature. There could be no punishment for sin outside of, without the law. Paul of Tarsus explains that in the epistle to the Romans. That where there is no law, there is no sin. So why was Adam punished? And why were the people of Noah's time punished if there was no law? And the truth is that there was one law. There was one law. One thing that Adam was told not to do was to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That must be the law that was violated not only in Genesis chapter 3, but also in Genesis chapter 6. In the beginning, we have two trees, a tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life. In the gospel of Christ, it is revealed, one of the things kept secret from the foundation of the world, is that the tree of life is Christ himself and his people. I am the vine, you are the branches. In the revelation of Christ, it's revealed again. In the last chapter of the Revelation, we see the tree of life has 12 manner of fruits, and those 12 manner of fruits must be the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So we know what the tree of life is. It's our race, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is that race represented by the serpent. So at the end of the book, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not found. Only the tree of life is found. The city of God has the tree of life. It has no more tree of knowledge of good and evil. So the, the Bible can be understood from beginning to end when you have both the Revelation and Genesis. But you're never going to understand Genesis just by reading Genesis. You you got to read the Bible from <laughs> from front to back, and then you have to understand it from back to front. That's the way it is. What we have this um, depiction of God and and the um, <sighs> the the ancient of days and. Many of the symbols, the, the lamps and the, and the lampstands and, and the symbols that we see in the book of Zechariah, and right away we should understand that the subject 
the subjects of the book of Revelation and the book of Zechariah are the same subjects, and they are. And then we have the messages to seven churches. And a lot of them, um, like Compare and Howard Rand and, and a lot of these early Christian identity interpreters had followed some of the Protestant interpreters in believing that these seven churches were seven stages, seven stages in church history. And Howard Rand even goes so far as to assigning dates to each of those stages. And basically, I don't accept that. I don't accept that because the um, things for which each of these churches were criticized for or not criticized for have always existed throughout every stage of Christian history. They have always been with us. They were with us in the first century, and they're with us today. To me, it's more important, these messages to the seven churches. Each message is more important in relation to the name, the meaning of the name of the church. For instance, Ephesus means desirable, and Smyrna means ointment, and Pergamus, it is the it, it means tower. A Pergamus is a tower or a citadel. And this particular Pergamus was actually the capital of the Italid kingdom in the third and second centuries BC, which was a notable kingdom in history that was eventually um, became the property of the emperor in Rome. And Thuatira means heavenly sacrifice. Sardis refers to a stone that, 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 that's um, the meaning, the, the interpretation of the meaning here is a little ambiguous, but Sardis is basically a stone that has a wide range of colors. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Laodicea means righteous people. But from the way that Greeks um, use the term dikaia or decia, dikaia for righteousness, it, it was the righteousness of man as opposed to the righteousness of God. We can interpret these names and look at these messages, and we could see clearly that all of these attitudes are among Christians today. Out of these seven assemblies, Two assemblies are not criticized by God. They are commended. And those two assemb assemblies are Smyrna and Ephesus. I'm sorry, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna and Philadelphia are the churches that are not criticized by God. And, and what are the meanings of Smyrna and Philadelphia? Smyrna is ointment used for anointing. And the Apostle John in his epistle speaks generally of Christians, and he says, the anointing that we have received. The children of Israel are God's anointed people. And if you cling to that anointing, Yahweh God has no criticism of you in the Revelation. Philadelphia means brotherly love. If you cling to that brotherly love, Christ said, 
keep my commandments. And I have a new commandment that you love one another. If you cling to that brotherly love, Christ has no criticism of you in the revelation. But there's something else interesting in the messages to the seven churches. Satan or the synagogue of Satan is only mentioned in three of those. First, in Smyrna, the the people of Smyrna are warned to beware of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Then, in the message to the people of Philadelphia, Christ promises that he will force the synagogue of Satan, those who say they are Jews and are not, to worship at your feet. If you love your brother, the Jew cannot hurt you. If you truly love your brother and, and, and work to, to um, edify your brethren, uphold your community, and, and act as a true Christian should, you cannot be harmed by the Jews. They will worship at your feet, according to the words of Christ. Now, this may, we still may suffer here in, in, um, in this physical world, but the, the devil is not going to overcome you if you love your brother or if you cling to that anointing. Which means if, if you your bro- that you understand your brother can only be one of the anointed and one of the other children of Israel. That's your brother. Your brother is your fellow white man. Is that, other um, races. Can I just, can other I just, races. I just want to ask a question there, Bill. Um, with the anointed, where they're called the anointed, would that go back to when Isaac was being prepared to be a sacrifice? Would he have been anointed? In preparation well, well, for the yes, sacrifice, absolutely. When Isaac was prepared for for being a sacrifice, he would have he he would have naturally been anointed or or washed according to the the tradition of sacrifices. So that's yes. what that's what it's referring to. It's re- is referring to that 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 blessing, that covenant, the fact that he's he's now owned by God and it's holding to that, holding to that promise, having faith in that promise. So that's what, I that's what it's entire- meaning there. I have an entire paper, a, a short essay, um, which explains that the children of Israel are the anointed of God collectively and cites many. I, I didn't go back to the sacrifice of Isaac, but I cited many passages in the Old Testament and in Paul's language in the New Testament where the translations have obfuscated the concept to prove that the children of Israel collectively are the anointed of God. And often where we read the word Christ, the, the, the translate, the literal translation would make a lot more sense in relation to the people. So that, that concept has been obscured by Judeo Christian translations for, for centuries. The third time that um, Satan is mentioned in these messages to the seven churches, it's not the third time in sequence, but I think it's the third time in, in my explanation because of, of the 
importance of it is in the message to the church at Pergamos, where Satan's seat is. Why would Christ say that? And I don't know if I could do the research on it that I, I would like to, because I don't know if the information could possibly be available. But in Paul's epistle to the Romans, which was written in, in or about 57 AD, and, and I can establish that, um, I have in my Romans commentary, Paul says to the Romans that God would crush Satan under their feet shortly. And 13 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans. Satan's seat was in Jerusalem. Satan being the adversary to Christ, being the Edomite Jews, being the organized um Talmudic body of these Edomite Jews claiming to be Israel, those who say they are Jews and are not, or Judah and are not, they evidently moved from Jerusalem because it was destroyed in 70 AD into the cities of, of the Greeks in the West that they would have had no other choice but to go to Arabia or, or to um or to the East. Now it can be demonstrated that once Rome accepted Christianity, that a great number of Jews were forced to go to Arabia or to Parthia or, or, or Persia or Khazaria. However, this is 70 AD and, and it's not six, it's not the sixth, sixth century yet. The Jews are very comfortable in the pagan world of old Rome and evidently, a great number of them must have went to Pergamos, because in 57 AD, Satan's seat was Jerusalem. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Now, Pergamos is described as the place where Satan's seat is. And that also helps date the revelation, that the dating, the revelation must have been written after 70 AD, because there is no Jerusalem. And Satan's seat is now somewhere else. It's in Pergamos, according to Christ in the Revelation. Um, what, what, what was the other so, meaning for so, Pergamos? I mean, you said Smyr Smyrna meant um, ointment, and Pergamos, did that have another uh, alternative well, meaning well, to it? Pergamos was originally the name of the citadel of ancient Troy. But later the word came to be, came to describe any citadel of any city. And this Pergamos was the, the seat or citadel of the famous um, Italic kingdom of the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, which was actually um, independent from Rome and, and very friendly to Rome, which is how it remained um, independent until the last of the Italic kings died and willed his entire estate to the Senate and people of Rome the in the second is, century BC. The citadel is, is sort of the, where, where the government are. Is that right? Is that correct? 
Yes. Well, well, the citadel of a city is usually where the government offices and the treasury are. Ah, and and sometimes and sometimes even the the temple of its chief god, which is what we see in Jerusalem. The the um the the temple and the king's palace and and the treasury was in the temple at Jerusalem that they occupied the highest hills in the city, right? The the citadels. So so that that was common in every Greek city that the treasury that the most fortified place in the city was the citadel and that would be the government offices the the palace the temple the treasury would all be there. Well, he's still there, General. isn't he? He's still there, isn't he? Today, he's still there in the citadel. Satan. Yes, Satan is still occupying the citadels, but now they're no longer in Pergamos. Now they're in. Um, Frankfurt, London, New York, <laughs> Beijing, <laughs> all over the place. It's very clever, cleverly written stuff. You know, crypt cryptic references like that. So it applied to the time, well, and it also applies to all of time. That that to me, it is the the most important aspect of these early chapters of the Revelation. Are these messages to the seven churches and how to decipher what they're telling us? And and if you love your brother and and you oh, you, you cling to the anointing, which is to the children of Israel, to to your own white European kind, and you understand the devil, because those two assemblies, Smyrna anointing and Philadelphia brotherly love, they were warned. About those Jews, and and actually um, commended for for understanding that the Jews were lying. So that's how we know that our um, interpretation of Christianity, which rejects the Jews as devils, is the true interpretation. Those two assemblies were not; they were not. They understood the Jews were devils the synagogue of Satan, and they were not chastised or, or, or criticized by Christ. And that also helps to establish a proof that these Judeo churches have it all backwards because they've been co-opted by Jews. The Jews actually had people convinced that they can't understand the revelation un until some date far off in the future. And, and that's absolutely boneheaded. We can understand the revelation if we understand both history and especially ancient history and the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament. Daniel pro prophesied the, the rise and fall of Rome. And the Revelation prophecies the fall of Rome. And Irenaeus, a second century Christian in Gaul, in, in, in what we know today as France, Irenaeus understood that the Revelation prophesied the fall of Rome before Rome fell. He understood that. He understood that this was that these next chapters, chapters um Six and and eight, especially, were prophesying the fall of Rome, 
and the, the the vision in in chapter six of the four horsemen of, of the apocalypse is all about the rise and fall of Rome, and Irenaeus understood that, and Revelation chapter eight and and the um, the opening of the first four trumpets is all about the fall of Rome and brings the revelation and history up uh, until the fifth or or sixth centuries. The revelation is not first. There's two aspects of, of prophecy that that have to be discussed and understood. The first is that the revelation isn't it isn't a, a chronicle of future history where it's going to explain everything that's going to happen. That's not what it is. The revelation is a prophecy um, portraying general significant and general events in um, poetic language based on biblical symbolism that is not written so that we can tell the future. It's written so that we could look back, read it, look back, and see that God is true. That's why it's written. Are you still with me? Yes, yes. I, I, I'm just just agreeing with you um you know it, it's so that we look look back in the past and we can identify things that have happened and and we can identify that in in revelation in this in this cryptic language that's used there uh, and it's not linear it's not it's not going to go from you know from from uh 0 AD up to 2000 it, it's not going to be linear because it was all seen in in a vision and things that you see in a vision were would um or things that John saw in his vision were corresponding to events happening on, on earth and the angel explains some of them to him and, and others he doesn't explain to him but the whole point of, of of prophecy like that is to so that we can look back not so that we can divine the future but so that we can look back at the past and see God's hand in it and and see that it was it was predicted that this would happen there it was written about there and that's that's the proof of the scripture not so that we can divine the future. I mean, that's a, a pagan idea, soothsaying and and future tell, telling telling the future, which is what the Judeo churches today seem to think that it's all about. It's all about predicting what's going to happen in the future, and it's not. It's it's about identifying exactly what was happening in the past, what was meant by it. Well, well, right. And and to me, the messages of the seven churches uh, are given so that we can understand the various attitudes that. Christians would have in the future and the ones that are criticized and the ones that are not criticized indicate to us what true Christian behavior should be. And, and that corresponds perfectly with the gospels of Christ, the epistles of the apostles. And once we have that key, we understand that our interpretation of the scripture is correct because those assemblies were not criticized and they have the anointing and they should engage in the brotherly love and they should identify the devil. That's the, that's the key to that understanding to the racial identity of, of Christians in relation to scripture and the racial identity of Jews in relation to scripture is right there in those couple of messages to those churches. And then the other messages to the other churches, they're just as important 
and and show us the the attitudes that we should and shouldn't have and and what's going to happen to a lot of us and and what's not so so they're just as important but in an overall christian sense and not specifically to help establish our proofs of christian identity so i'm i'm not dismissing the other aspects of christianity but our subject and and our argument here is to demonstrate the veracity of our Christian identity interpretation of Scripture here in this Bible Basic series, right? In in um in in Revelation chapters two and three, we see this message of of the seven assemblies. In chapter four, we see the throne of Yahweh described. In chapter five, the lion of Judah and the scroll with the seven seals. Of course, the lion of Judah is Christ himself, and he is opening the scrolls. He is revealing to us in this, this prophetic language what is going to happen. And the... The, the first six seals are in Revelation chapter six, the four horsemen of, of, of the um, apocalypse, as they're popularly called. And those four horsemen of the apocalypse, and this is, I believe, a correct interpretation that Howard Rand is the first place I've read it. And that's the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. And I won't get into the details here. The details are all in my book, Christrike. And and then we move on to the um, the sealing of the tribes and the innumerable multitude of Israel. And that there are that there's a lot of foolish interpretations of this. But here we have twelve tribes are sealed, and then we have. An innumerable multitude, which which had um, washed their robes and whitened them in the blood of the Lamb, and a lot of people want to claim, oh, that the twelve tribes are the Jews, and the innumerable multitude are the other races, and that includes us stupid Christians, and and that's exactly what it is is stupid. <laughs> if, if if you take, if you understand this in accord with the rest of prophecy and and the rest of the Bible, because it it's not none of these passages exist in a vacuum or on an island. None of these passages can be interpreted without understanding the entire scripture. So that these twelve tribes are, are the people of Israel scattered abroad, who are the the um preponderance of the ancestors of, of the of most of the European nations. And they are the 12 tribes spread abroad. And of course, there's other branches of the white race mixed in with them here and there. But that doesn't make them any less Adamic people. It, it's just the way that Europe had developed that the Japetites were there first and, and some of the other Shemitic tribes like the Lydians and and then the children of Israel had uh, had um basically colonized among them or conquered them and marginalized or pushed aside some of them while, while um blending in and and becoming one with others that that's just the way that history developed but these 12 tribes are the children of Israel 
and if we study the, the, the text concerning these um, nations and tribes and peoples and tongues that, that are mentioned after that, that phrase, all nations, could only mean all the nations of the Adamic Oikumene, that part of the world which Rome ruled over, and that part of the world which is undergoing the tribulation that was begun to be described in Romans chap- in, in Revelation chapter six, and is com- com- it is further described in chapter eight. And right here in the middle, we have the sealing of the tribes, which is merely an assurance that the Israelites are going to survive this calamity, which is going to come upon the world. Because the fall of Rome changed the entire world, and and the the wars that centuries of war that that the represented that led to it and that resulted after it, that the children of Israel, all twelve tribes, would survive that. Those which were within the the Oikumene would survive that, and this is an assurance that they would survive, that the people of God would survive. If you look at Judeo-Christian interpretation, they'll tell you that the 12 tribes disappeared, that they're lost, they disappeared. And here we have the 12 tribes sandwiched in to these depictions of the fall of Rome in Revelation chapters 6 and 8, and that's an assurance that they certainly didn't disappear, that Europeans were those 12 tribes. Ancient history, we could prove that Europeans were those 12 tribes. So the, the revelation is basically um, synchronous. It, it coincides perfectly with the Christian identity view of Scripture. And that's why it's centered around Europe. If Christianity was originally meant for Jews, why wouldn't this be all about Jews? And actually, none of it's about Jews. Jews are only mentioned as devils and the adversary or Satan. This is all about Europeans. So in Rome, we have these um, the seventh seal and its first four trumpets are all about the fall of Rome. And, and there are historical identifiers in this prophecy that, that tell us um, without doubt that this is about the fall of Rome. That there was a, um, it, it talks about the, the stars and the sun being darkened. And, and in 536, 537 AD, there was a point there where the sun was dark, darkened. And, and Procopius in his history explained that through a whole year, the sun was darkened, that it was as dark as the moon. It was like the sun in eclipse for a whole year. And that's attributed to certain um, natural causes from the viewpoint of today's science. But a lot of that, that, to me, even though I understand that the darkening of the sun and the moon and, and the falling of the stars is symbolic of events on Earth, that to me is a natural occurrence which helps to assure the veracity of the interpretation. 
And um, so, so Revelation chapter 8 describes the fall of Rome. And Revelation chapter 9, the fifth and sixth trumpets, is actually describing the plague of Islam, first from the Arabs and then from the Turks. And what we see here is a progression of important events in history being prophesied by God. And when we take this depiction of Revelation chapters 8 and 9, and we line it up, we line these prophecies up with those in Daniel chapters 7 and 8, it is practically unmistakable that this is the true interpretation of the Revelation. In chapter 10, we see the opening of the little book. And what does that mean? And before the, um, before the Middle Ages, before the invention of the printing press, it was very difficult for people to have copies of the scriptures, usually or, or quite often even in the days of Paul. An entire assembly might only have partial copies of some of the scriptures or at best one copy of the canonical scriptures or the scriptures generally esteemed to be canonical. So books were very hard to come by. They were rare. They were expensive. They, they were copied by hand. They didn't last very long on papyrus. They were a lot more durable on animal skins, but that method was even more expensive to, to produce a book. So, so not very many people owned books. And during the Middle Ages, especially from about the 12th century, the um, Catholic Church began to prohibit people from having copies of the scriptures. The opening of the book represents the invention of the printing press and the wide distribution of scriptures, the greater availability of scriptures. And the Catholic Church tried to stop that in the Fifth Lateran Council under the de Medici Pope, um, Giovanni de Medici Pope um, Leo X he was, they tried to stop the distribution of Bibles on printing presses, and they failed because it kicked off, it helped to spark the Protestant Reformation, and Revelation chapter 11, the subject of that and the two witnesses are the Protestant Reformation. And the first witness, and, and each witness, the witnesses were to testify for three and a half days. A day is a year in prophecy. And those two three and a half year periods can be identified. One from the time of the decrees of the Fifth Lateran Council that basically prohibited Christians from having scripture to the time when Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church in, in Wittenberg. That was approximately three and a half years where the Catholics were, were attempting to stamp out the possibility of the Reformation to the time of Luther, 
was approximately three and a half years, and the Catholics failed. And the second three and a half years describes the period of Bloody Mary in, in Britain, who tried to prevent the, the Protestants from prevailing in Britain. So that these two witnesses were witnesses against the tyranny of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, ensuring that the people of God would have the word of God in their hands. That's the significance of the opening of the book, the, the ability of the people to have the word of God, as opposed to the being told what to do by the Antichrist dogmas of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and the two witnesses are the, the struggle that it took in order to assure that the Bible would not be extinguished by the enemies of God who had infiltrated and taken control of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's what's going on there. And it would have been, the Roman Catholic Church would have been a lot worse and a lot more tyrannical if Protestantism had not prevailed or, or succeeded. Now we reach Revelation chapter 12. And this chapter is, is a, has multifold interpretations. And I don't even know if I can get into them and in, in completely, but it's telling us not only things which have happened in the past, but also things which will happen in the future. And that is Satan being cast out of heaven. The Satan here is identified as a great portion of the angels of God who rebelled or joined in rebellion against God and would be cast out of heaven. And the virgin with the 12 stars, cloaked with the sun and the moon beneath her feet, represents the people of Israel. And the 12 stars are the 12 tribes. And the people of Israel, through the Virgin Mary, bore the Christ child. And the devil, the dragon, attempted to slay the Christ child. Once we learn that Herod the Great was an Edomite, and that the Edomites are descended from the Canaanites, and that the Canaanites are descended from the Kenites, and that the Kenites are the descendants of Cain, and that Cain was really the son of the devil, we can understand how this unfolded in history. Because the satanic entity in Revelation chapter 12 is identified with that old serpent who was the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. So, Satan was cast out of heaven and the tree of not for rebelling against God, and there's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil already in the garden of God when Adam is created. A lot of people make a, a lot of um, arguments over the other trees in the garden. There were trees in the garden which God had planted into the ground, 
but there are only two trees that he did not plant into the ground. So there are only two trees which are really figurative trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the serpent is the representative of that tree. That tree must be a race of people, a race of people with branches, just like a a real tree. And in my interpretation, and I have good reason for this interpretation in the parables of Christ, all of the other races, all of the non-Adamic races are branches on a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They are the corruptions which are caused, which were perpetrated by these so-called fallen angels who fell from heaven. Heaven in ancient manuscripts, heaven in Assyrian and Sumerian literature represented the seats of power and government on earth. That's what these angels fell from. They were a race of men who corrupted God's creation and because of their corruption fell from heaven. And the Adamic race was created here so that the will of God ultimately prevails and the Adamic race will ultimately have dominion over the entire earth and tread upon, which is what that Hebrew word for dominion means, tread upon everything else that was here. When you go to the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, we find that all of the goats, all of the non-sheep nations, have a destiny in a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the only explanation for that could be that they are the branches on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the only way that that could come, can can be um, synchronized with Genesis and the Revelation. That's the only understanding where all of those statements in those parables, in the Revelation and in Genesis are compatible and do not conflict. Anything else leads to conflict in the scripture. We cannot interpret the scripture so that there is purposeful conflict and claim that we don't know it because we don't want to face up to the issue of race and creation. There's also Michael there, isn't there? I was just going to say, there's also Michael there, isn't there? Uh, And Michael and he there's also Michael there, isn't there? And Michael, and he made war against the angels. And it's like, um, you know, the various figures that come up through history and make war against um, these devils that are in power, like Hitler did, like others have before him. And they, and, they and f- have the role of Michael. That's exactly, exactly. A lot of people want to insist that Michael means Jesus Christ. And that's simply not true. If you read... Um, the book of Daniel and the where, where Michael is mentioned in the book of Daniel, you'll find that Michael is only one of the chief princes. He's one of the chief princes who had come to help Daniel. And Daniel says, and I remain there with the kings of Persia. So 
Daniel was using that same word, Michael, to describe one of the great leaders of the people of the Persians in his time. Why would Daniel do that? Because if we read the book of Daniel, we find that Daniel himself was an official in the government of the Babylonians and then of the Persians after the time of Cyrus. He was a prophet of God, but he was also the third man in the kingdom under the Babylonians. He was given um, official government responsibilities and obligations as part of that appointment. So Daniel is describing in prophetic language events which were happening in his time. That this isn't just some, some um, empty symbol. Michael means who is like God. True Christians understand that Jesus Christ is God. Therefore, Jesus Christ cannot be described with the term Michael. The term Michael cannot describe Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God, where Michael only means who is like God. It's asking a question. Every, if we understand the overall scope and purpose of God in the scripture, we're told over and over again that vengeance belongs to him, that this struggle, which has, has, um, gone on throughout the entire history of our Adamic race is greater than us. It began before us and only God himself can settle it once and for all. The next Holocaust, the real Holocaust, it is going to be perpetrated by Christ himself, by God himself. That's the Holocaust that we owe the Jews. But we might be instruments in that, but the vengeance belongs to him. This struggle is greater than us because it's between these original rebellious angels who are among us today walking in chains of darkness, as the apostles describe. They're walking about infiltrating and corrupting and subverting Christian society as they are in chains of darkness, they're among us today, and the ultimate vengeance belongs to God. So Michael simply means, as you stated, who is like God? It refers to various individuals throughout history who um, were given the role of opposing the adversaries of God but they would never be entirely successful because they are not God. Where Christ is God, and he will be entirely successful, ultimately. And, and that portion of the revelation we haven't gotten to yet. So in Revelation chapter 12, we see this war between um, Michael and the serpent and it it's it it history repeats itself because we never learn its lessons and this can be said to have happened in 70 AD but it's also going to happen again in the future 
And it had also happened in the remote past because the serpent is equated with that old serpent. The satanic entity here is equated with that old serpent and the dragon and Satan. And a lot of people, a, a lot of the Jewish higher critics love to say, oh, the dragon isn't mentioned in the Old Testament. But yes, it is. In Isaiah chapter 27, in that day, the Lord will punish with his sore and great strong sword, shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, that crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. You know, that's not a, a prophecy of God coming down to earth and, and spearing some sea monster in the Atlantic Ocean. That's a friggin' comic book interpretation of the prophecy. And Yahweh God is not a comic book character. That dragon that is in the sea, that is that satanic entity walking amongst us. That is the Edomite and Canaanite and, and Rephaim and, and Kenites who are found today in particularly particularly in the Jews, but also as elements of all the other non-white races. They're among the Arabs, they're among the Chinese, they're among the, the, the Indians and Pakistanis. They, they have managed to blend in with and, and race mix with all of these other races. That's why in the Revelation, there's a flood in Revelation chapter 12 that there's a flood which comes from the serpent's mouth in order to persecute the woman. That flood is these other races that the Jews are flooding us with today. And they attempted to flood us with these other races many times in the past, like with the rise of Islam. Uh, actually, a, a dragon so, means dragon means a winged serpent as well, doesn't it? So, I mean, it does. You know, it doesn't actually have to mention the Leviathan being a dragon there, because a dragon is a winged serpent. So it's a serpent that has the ability to be everywhere. It's not limited to one place. It has wings. A winged serpent. So dragon well, is a good right. way to describe and, it. And the the sea is the mass of the world's people. Yeah. And and that's often evident in scripture. So in Revelation chapter 12, we have a very poetic um, description of this struggle between the people of God and these fallen angels and Christ himself and these fallen angels. And this chapter gives us the keys to understanding what happened in Genesis chapter 3, what happened in Genesis chapter 6, what happened when Herod attempted to slay Christ and helps us identify who Herod is in a in very poetic language, that Josephus, Flavius Josephus, the historian, supplies the history that informs us that this interpretation is true, that this Herod and his family and, and the people who persecuted Christ and the apostles were indeed Edomites. And when we trace the Edomites back from the Old Testament, they were indeed 
descended from the dragon, from the serpent. And this prophecy also, in Revelation chapter 12, also helps us understand all subsequent history that the dragon has been persecuting the woman who fled into the wilderness. The woman was taken into the desert where she has there a place prepared from God in order that they may nourish her. These, that these great wings which took her there, that they may nourish her for 1,260 days. Christianity kept the Jew apart from the people of Europe for over a thousand years successfully. And over that thousand years, all of the ancient tribes of Israel, the dispersed white people in Europe, had ultimately accepted Christianity. They received that nourishment for 1,260 days, which is a 1,260-year period. Now, we have to hold on to that thought until we get to Revelation chapter 17. Because in Revelation chapter 17, we have a picture of the same woman, but now she's joined to the beast and she's become a whore. In Revelation chapter 12, the woman is innocent and is taken off to the wilderness to be nourished for 1260 years. And in Revelation chapter 17, John is, sees a different vision and he's taken back into the wilderness and sees a woman. But now she's no longer innocent and in need of nourishment. Now she's a whore joined to the beast. That describes the state of our people. At the beginning, when they began to receive Christianity, and at the end, after she's been once again subverted by the devil, subverted by Satan, and will and and that happens when the Jews are let out of the pit, and that's okay. We have this progression of events up to this point. And in Romans chapter 13, I'm sorry, in Revelation chapter 13, we see a description of two great beasts. The first beast is described in the first half of Revelation chapter 13 up through about verse 9. And the second beast, which comes from the first beast, is described in the rest of the chapter. And this also is um, interlocks with the prophecies in Daniel chapter 7, specifically. And, and also, to a degree, in Daniel chapter 2. The first beast of Revelation is the series of empires that ruled over the children of Israel throughout their history. And up until the time of Rome, and Rome was destroyed. And the second beast comes out of the first, and that is the Roman Catholic Church, 
which had actually served as an extension of old Roman imperialism through which the Byzantine emperors had, and, and later the Roman popes, had justified ruling over the children of Israel. The second beast is the Roman Catholic Church, and, and my Christrike, my interpretation of this chapter in my book, Christrike, and in the Revelation podcast at Christagenia, where it's all free. You don't have to buy the book. Just go read the podcast notes at Christagenia, and you'll have everything that I have in the book. My interpretation discusses every detail that proves my overall contention here. So Revelation chapter 13, Revelation chapter 12, they are not um, visions progressing from Revelation chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Revelation chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 are an overall view of the history of our white world from the fall of Rome until the Reformation. Revelation chapter 12 is a separate vision which describes things from the past and the future. And Revelation chapter 13 is a separate vision which describes these two beasts. The first beast being the series of empires in the past. And the second beast being the Roman Catholic Church, the extension of the first beast, the extension of Roman imperialism up through the Middle Ages. Then there's another chapter that sort of breaks the context and, and supplies a new vision, and that's the chapter of the 144,000 and, and the saints who, who are with Christ and, and looks forward to the fall of Babylon the Great. So this is basically the way I see it at a um a vision an overall vision of what is going to happen subsequent to the end of the first beast of, of the, the 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 two beasts the second beast the end of the two beasts of revelation chapter 13 this is a a, a Revelation chapters 14 and 15 are basically a warning for our present time. The, it, it describes the era of self-government and the loosing of Satan from the pit, which we have endured since the French Revolution. And, and that's described in an overall vision in Revelation chapter 20, but it's also being described here in, in Revelation chapters um, 14, 15, and 16, the Jews were, Satan was locked in the pit for a thousand years. For at least a thousand years, and this is one thing that the Catholics kind of did right, except that they had allowed these Jews to convert to Christianity and infiltrate and subvert Christianity through their conversion. The conversion of Jews to Christianity was the fatal mistake of the Roman Catholic Church. Because as soon as the Jews converted to Christianity, they bought their way into bishoprics and, and high, high appointments, appointments in high offices, and, and they started to write Bible commentaries 
and they started to um, create the foundations for later church doctrines, and and that enabled the devil to subvert that second beast. That's what made it a beast. That's what made the Roman Catholic Church into a beast and gave it its tyrannical nature over the children of Israel, over the Christian people of God. So this is all very abstract, and and you really have to understand medieval history and church history very well in order to understand it. So Revelation chapters 14 and 15 are are this warning of what is to come and looking forward to the fall of Babylon, this mystery Babylon, Babylon the Great. And when we get to um, Revelation chapter 16, we see these seven bowls of the wrath of God. And this wrath of God is actually punishment on the people. It's the punishment of the people of God. And these seven bowls describe circumstances, I believe, which are still with us today. They've, they've never um, left us. The the bowls represent the the death of the spiritual life in those Christian nations as people began to worship the beast. And the seven bowls represent the resulting wars, which stemmed, the wars stemmed from humanism, the wars and revolutions in Europe stemmed from humanism and the Jewish influence over Christianity. And all of these, the the, um, the industrialization and, and the paving of the way from the kings of the rising of the sun, which is the, the merging of, of the Western world and the Oriental world, which was enabled through industrialization and global commerce. And that's what Mystery Babylon is founded on, is all about, is global commerce. And, and then from, the, from out of the mouth of the dragon and from out of the mouth of the beast and from out of the mouth of the false prophet were, came three unclean spirits like frogs. And I really believe that, that, that the, the French have been called frogs for a good historical reason that because of the plagues of frogs uh, upon Paris at various times in in the Middle Ages, that the English began to call the French frogs. And and I think that's an indication, a small indication of what's being spoken of here. But my interpretation doesn't depend on it. With the French Revolution and with the coming, the, the emergence of the Jews out of the pit, the pit was actually representative of the ghettos in Europe and the fact that the Jews could not intermarry with Christians, could not hold political office, and, and there were other strictures. They did not have equal citizenship with Christians. They were, never, they were never citizens. The Jews were in a pit in the ghettos and had no real power over Christian society. That's why Satan, that's the pit that Satan was locked into for those thousand years. So, through Freemasonry, the Jews were able to exert a lot of, behind the scenes, 
hidden influence over Christian nobility and Christian scholarship. And they began to promote humanism through Freemasonry. And that led to the French Revolution. And the cry of the French Revolution was liberty, egality, fraternity. And those words are still the national motto of France today. And it's those ideas which are Jewish, Jewish ideas that men should have liberty, Jewish ideas that all men are equal, Jewish ideas that all men should have fraternity or brotherhood, regardless of their race. These, this modern liberal world has been predicated on those three ideas, and those are anti-Christian ideas, which have led us to the current multiculturalism and diversity which we suffer under today. Because the modern world, even the founders of the United States in America, were convinced that these ideals were sound ideals upon which society should be based, and they are actually anti-Christian and have led to the destruction of the West. And the Jew was behind it all from the beginning. You think those three ideals, the liberty, fraternity, uh, uh, liberty, equality, fraternity, you think that's the three evil spirits, the frogs? They are the three evil spirits yeah. of the unclean frogs. Yes, Makes sir. Sense. The unclean Frenchmen. <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> they were the ideals of the French Revolution. And that French Revolution what was the harbinger of, of the destruction of the monarchical system which led to democracy and the age of liberty that we suffer under today. Because Christians truly have no liberty without Christ. Christians truly have no brotherhood outside of their own race and people. And there certainly is no equality as it's promoted in the French Revolution, in, in the ideals of liberalism. The ideals, the equality promoted in the ideals of liberalism is a false god. It does not exist. All men are not equal. All men are not suited for public office. All men are not suited for any um, position or station in life that, that that they happen to fall into or bribe their way into. All men are not suited to marry any woman. All of this is false, that this is anti-Christian. It, it's anti-white culture. It's anti-white civilization and society. And it's opened the doors for everything, every plague that white people suffer today has been predicated on those three false ideals Liberty, fraternity, and equality. And the Jew has deceived. That's why in, in, in Revelation chapter 20, what we see this, um, this depiction, and, and I'm jumping ahead. Let, let me go to Revelation chapter 18. Revelation chapter 17, we see that the whore, 
The whore is the same woman that John left in the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12. And now he goes back to the wilderness and sees this woman. And this woman is also the 12 tribes of Israel, except now instead of being a virgin, she's a whore. And now instead of being nourished by the word of God, she's joined to the beast. That describes the exact um, predicaments and situation of our race in a transition from, say, the 5th century A.D., 6th century A.D., to the predicament it's in today or ever since the 18th century A.D. So we see that the history of our race and the circumstances prophesied in a revelation have followed the same exact pattern, and that is not a coincidence. The children of Israel in Daniel were to be given the kingdom. And the kingdom would not be left to another people, Daniel chapter 7. Here, in the Revelation, the children of Israel have handed their kingdom over to the beast. How could both circumstances be true? Because the beast is, in, in Revelation 13, we see that the dragon gives its power to the beast. The beast is a system, which is a system of world rule, of world governance, which is empowered by the dragon, by the Jew. And the Jew is history's oldest panderer and usurer. And the beast is propped up by the central banking system where money is created from nothing and funneled to those who are doing the will of the dragon. And the beast exists. It gets its power from the dragon, as it says in Revelation chapter 13. The beast exists because it's willing to do the will of the dragon. So through the same period of time from the French Revolution, all of the European nations have adopted this central banking system which the Jew, the dragon, is behind. And the central banking system rules over the world today. Over all of the white nations of what was formerly Christendom, that is how the woman has joined herself to the beast. The, that is how the woman has become a whore. And look at the condition of our white race and Christian nations today that condition is predicated on this situation. That's what's happening throughout the last 250 years of history, 300 years of history, ever since the success of the French Revolution and the rise of the age of liberalism. In Revelation chapter 18, which helps establish my contentions, uh, 
we see this mystery Babylon is actually described as the world system of banking and commerce, the global system of trade. It's all centered around the merchants and the merchandising. In Revelation chapter 19, after Babylon falls, in Revelation chapter 18, we hear a call to come out of her lest we suffer her punishments. This is still in our future. And we as identity Christians should pray that we are very close to this time when this artificial system of world um, finance and commerce created by the Jew actually crumbles. And that's the system that controls all politics and all of the enforcement of law that we see in all of our European nations today is actually enabled by that system of, of um, world commerce and, and, and banking. Mystery Babylon has an economic aspect. It has a social aspect. It has a political aspect. And all of those aspects were, are, are roughly parallel with the way that the ancient Babylonian kingdom and, and the kingdoms of the ancient world had also operated. And if you look at the, um, the ancient priesthoods of, of Mesopotamia, you will find that they operated in a way to uphold the rule of the kings. It's the same thing today. These churches that we have today are agents for Mystery Babylon. They're agents for the Jews. That's why we've seen radical changes in Christian attitudes towards Jews over the same 300-year period where it used to be that Christians rejected Jews and worshipped Jesus. Now they give Jesus lip service and they worship Jews. Every aspect from which we look at our society today is described here. The reasons for it are described here in the Revelation. And it's going to collapse. And when it collapses, the Christian people of God are given a call to come out of her, my people, unless you suffer her punishments. Those who come out of her are told to reward unto her double as she rewarded you. That's the vengeance of the people of God. That's the vengeance of God that's going to be conducted through his people. And that's the day that all identity Christians should be waiting for and prepared for right now. Because we hope it comes at any time. Nobody thought that Rome would fall. This Jewish world system today is certainly going to fall. That fall and that destruction of all of our enemies and all the enemies of our God is described in Revelation chapter 19. But in Revelation chapter 20, you have a separate vision. And this vision describes all of the things that had been going on in the several chapters before it, but it describes it in a different way. 
And in Revelation chapter 20, there is one very serious interpolation in the scripture, which first appears in the 5th century in the Codex Alexandrinus, <coughs> but which doesn't appear in any of the other ancient manuscripts. I'm sorry? No, no, I, I wasn't saying anything. I am... Um... <clears throat> Oh, I thought you said something. I was I was gonna say something before you just got in got into that bit though. I was just gonna say we can see how um hard it is to e extricate ourselves from the system today. I mean we rely on it for absolutely everything. We are completely right. stuck there with, with the beast. We can pull ourselves away from it individually. I mean we we can try to separate ourselves from it individually, but you know, there's there's no real hope of, of, of a government pulling itself apart from it. You know, it, it's gonna take more than man to put things right. Everything is so Absolutely. messed up. You know, man can't That's, fix it. it. If man tried to do it like Adolf Hitler tried to do it, then he would fit the description of Michael, who is like God. Only God can do it. That's the, the entire overall purpose of, of our history and our, our, our scriptures describe this. They describe it. The entire overall purpose of our history is to prove to us that only God can rule over man, that man cannot rule himself, that man cannot rule over other men. It all leads to oppression and tyranny and evil, and it all leads to the rebellion of man against God, which is what we've seen, which is what we see described in the Revelation. No man is corrupt. It doesn't. Itself I'm sorry. I can say it doesn't matter what man does. I mean, we are we are corrupt. So we can have all the best intentions in the world, but things things will always fail. I mean, you're talking about the Roman Catholic Church and the, and the bad things that it that it became, but originally there, there were good people involved in that, and, and there's always been good people involved that start things off. And but by the nat by our very natures, we we are corrupt, and we have corrupt people among us, and and things fail. I mean, it was the church that was responsible for getting the Bible together in the first place, and and making sure that it was there. And then, but from that, it, it's gone on to you know empowering the beast. It's just well, the way well, of right, things. Because the the Pope started to diverge from the Bible and teach things that were not in the Bible, and in in the Middle Ages, five hundred years later. And, and and people that read Bibles started to realize that, so the popes attempted to suppress the Bible rather than attempting to promote it and make sure people had it. Yet, you know, if you read um, Bede, I know that a lot of Bretons today have, are, have a lot of spite and dislike for Bede because Bede was a, a Roman Catholic and an Anglo-Saxon apologist, right? Yeah, But if you read Bede, he was telling the truth. I, I believe that Bede's accounts are truthful, even though he was a Catholic papal ass kisser. He was, there's no doubt. But you know what? The Catholic Church and the papacy were something different back then than they are today or that they were in the 1500s. They were something different in Bede's time. And like you, like you indicated, they were a lot more innocent and, and had many more good intentions than they did bad. So Bede was a Catholic apologist, but if you read Bede, he explains 
in in the seventh and eighth centuries, early eighth centuries, that that certain officials of the church in England were actually making translations of scripture into the common vernacular. They were promoting the, dis, the, the distribution of scripture, the dissemination of scripture at the time of Bede. And Alfred the Great. But you moved. Alfred you the Great moved translated the 13th, it himself. 14th. I'm sorry. You remember Alfred the Great as well. I mean, the, the king, he translated, translated the Bible himself with introductions to it. Right. And drew, drew a distinction between Jews and Israel as well. He knew that they were, they were different, separate. He wrote and, it all out into English. And, and it was never looked down upon. But then by the 15th century, men were being burned at the stake for doing that. <laughs> so that's the, the, the change of attitude in 700 years. The change of attitude of the church in 700 years. It ties in with the, with a woman becoming part of the beast, doesn't it? Starting out as, as, as all innocent and being nourished. And then a, a thousand years later, you know, it, it all ties in. It's all, you know, gradually getting worse, gradually getting more and becoming more and more a part of the beast until we get right. to the, and get to the stage when the, the Jews are released, when Satan is released from the pit. Right. Absolutely. So, so as far as coming out of Babylon is concerned, yes, an individual can extricate himself from the system to a degree, and that degree depends often on the, the, the resources and financial position of the individual. But the, 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 there is no requirement for us to come out of Babylon. Until Babylon falls, because God himself must know how difficult or even impossible it is for most of us to separate ourselves from the system now. But just because we, we, we um, can't separate ourselves from this system, that doesn't mean that we have to like it. And that doesn't mean that we could try to separate ourselves from it in every degree possible. Not being able to come out of Babylon doesn't mean that you should start going back to Catholic Church and accepting Catholic heresy. Not being able to come out of Babylon doesn't give you an excuse for sitting in, in, in movie houses every night watching Jewish films. So there is, or, or, or following the, these, the, these professional football teams and basically worshiping niggers, you can come out of a lot of Babylon and not participate in the system to a great degree. Certain things you're going to have to do, you're going to have to have a job, feed your kids, pay your taxes, just to get along in the world. You do the things you have to do, but everything else you could, you could put away and you could find much better, more Christian, more wholesome activities to replace them with that don't feed the beast. Instead of going to a football game, go fishing. Yeah, I don't. I don't think we're supposed to hide hide away from it all either. Reject everything and go and go and live in the woods because that's that's neglecting our brethren. That's neglecting our brothers who haven't heard this message. You know, I think that that's well, well, that, right. that's almost I mean, as bad. My wife and I, my wife and I are always out in the world, 
and and always what what we go to brew pubs on occasion or or we go walk in malls and things like that we go walk in in on beaches and and every time i do that i'm basically looking for other white people that i could try to help try to talk to who might listen and and sometimes that gets me in a lot of trouble but <laughs> but sometimes it pays off well, nationalist meetups as well. I know you go to them. I, I go to them as well. You know that that and that that's you know prime prime people that need to hear this message. So you can't just well, right, run away and, and hide from it all. That that's what one reason why I participate in the League of the South because that's the probably about the um. It, it's it's definitely the best group of nationalists and and Christian nationalists that you can find in, in North America at this time, for sure. And, and especially in the South. So it, it's, we have to get out and, and have FaceTime and we should seek to do it with our, with, with fellow nationalists and especially with fellow Christian nationalists. If somebody is a Judeo Christian that embraces other races and worships Jews, an identity Christian can't have, any, anything to do with that person because they're really not Christians. They're not Christians at all. They're engaging in Jewish pop culture. They are imbued with Jewish pop culture, even though they use Christian terms and, and think they worship Jesus, think they love Jesus. Jesus hates that what they're doing. So we really can't, if you look at the sequence of events as it's described in Revelation chapter 18, we're not going to be successful in coming out of Babylon until Babylon falls. Because in a lot of ways, the system actually has us shackled. But once Babylon falls, we will be successful coming out, and we will be successful in our retribution. And there's no doubt. Because the Jews, God is not going to be mocked forever. So in, in Revelation chapter 20, there's this one passage that actually was added sometime after the 4th century, because it only appears in the early manuscripts, in the 5th century manuscripts, it only appears in the Codex Alexandrinus. And that one sentence has absolutely skewed the ability of most all of the Bible commentators in the past to understand the entire revelation. And that's where it says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. That's Revelation chapter 20, verse 5. And where it says, the first part, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. That line does not belong in Scripture. Scratch that line out. That's the line that only appears in the Codex Alexandrinus. But in all the other surviving manuscripts of the Revelation, it doesn't appear. In my book, Christ Strike, I had actually stated that that line did not appear until the 9th century AD. 
And my opinion and what I wrote there was accurate based on the information I had at the time from the 27th edition of the Nestle A-Land Novum Testamentum Grece, the Greek New Testament, the most authoritative publication of the Greek New Testament available today. However, there was an oversight in that copy of the Nestle A-Land that I could not have known about. The line does appear in the Codex Alexandrinus. I've seen reproductions of the Codex Alexandrinus available on the internet, um, photographs of the Codex, which do contain that line. So my next version of Christreich is going to be amended in my discussion of this passage. But my conclusion is still correct. The line does not belong in Scripture because it is not in any of the other ancient witnesses of the Revelation. It was added sometime from the fourth, after the 4th century. The Codex Sinaiticus does not contain the line. It does not belong in Scripture. And then the rest of verse 5 can be read because the word resurrection can also mean only restoration. This is the first restoration. In other words, the thrones and they who sat upon them and the judgment that was given to them for a thousand years is describing the rule of Christianity over the people of God, perfect or otherwise, for a thousand years. That is the first restoration. In other words, that is the first restoration of the children of Israel to world governance ruling in accordance with the commandments of Christ. That is the first restoration. Blessed and holy is he having a part in the first restoration. Over these, the second death does not have authority, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. That happened in the medieval period. When Christianity ruled over the children of Israel, the dispersed children of Israel in Europe, the Christian nations of Europe, whether it was for better or worse, Christian governance was still the de facto ruler of Europe. Christian men who were kings and priests. And when a thousand years are completed, now this is a process. Everything in Revelation describes a process. Christianity was not installed in Europe overnight. It began when the persecutions ended in the time of Constantine, and it took two or three hundred years to, to affect most of the Roman world and to assure Christian rulers in Rome. And then it was an ongoing process as the rest of the Germanic tribes were converted and things like that. So it's a process. Well, Satan coming out of the pit was also a process. That started in, in a couple of hundred years before the French Revolution. That process began, but it culminated with the French Revolution when the Jew acquired emancipation.
and became equal citizens with Christians, first in France and then 50 or 60 years later in Austria, in, in, in Prussia, in Saxony, in other parts of the Christian nations of Europe, it took longer for the Jew to get emancipation. But the, the best marker for that process is when it began is with the French Revolution and the adversary, Satan, the Jew, was released from his prison. And then it says that that adversary shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And that process began with colonial expansion, industrial expansion, and the initiation of global trade, where all of the non-white nations were folded into the world of Europe. And now are in, in a position to once again flood and destroy the white nations, the Christian nations. And this is the process that we see going on today to gather them to battle, of which the number of them is as the sand of the sea. Today, whites are greatly outnumbered by the other races, and very often even in our own lands, we're starting to become outnumbered. So Satan gathers all the world's other nations against the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And that beloved city is basically... Um, allegorical it's not a real city it's the people of god on earth and we are the camp of the saints and we everywhere we are we are the camp of the saints and we are being encircled by satan the jews and all of these other races this is going on right now so this is just like revelation chapter 13 was an overall depiction of everything in the chapters that preceded it. Revelation chapter 20 is an overall vision of everything that we saw in the visions of chapters 14 through, through 19. Revelation chapter 21 describes the city of God. On its gates are only 12 names. 12 gates, 12 names the names of the children of the tribes of Israel. Only the children of Israel are going to get through those gates. Revelation chapter 22 further describes the city of God, the river of life, the tree of life with 12 manners of fruits, and there is no more tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in Revelation chapter 20, we saw that there is no more sea and the sea is allegorically the mass of the world's other people. That sea are the goat nations, which, because they made war against the camp of the saints, are all going to the lake of fire. The Revelation is a happy book for white people with a happy end, because in the end, there are only white people left. And that's the details are all in 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 Christrike. I I I'm going to rewrite Christrike. I hope next year. 
2020 or possibly 2021, depending on when I'm finished with my commentaries on the gospel and the epistles of John. But I will, um, I do hope to represent my commentary on the revelation to expand it and to make it more thorough after I'm finished with that. I think it's uh, interesting, the, the different visions that, that were given to John, and they're showing the same thing. It's like he just really wanted to make sure that this message got across to him. So he was shown one vision that depicted uh, a certain sequence of events, and then he was shown another vision that was depicting the same sequence of events, but, but from a different angle, which is basically talking about the same thing all the way through, more more through multiple visions, basically, to ensure that even if he only just understood one of those visions correctly, he would he would understand what what was going what was going to happen. That's the way that it seems well, to me. Well, right, absolutely, and we see that same technique in the books of the ancient prophets. In Daniel chapter two, Daniel has a vision of a series of empires. In Daniel chapter seven, Daniel has a vision of a series of empires. It's not a different series of empires. It's the same empires described from a different perspective and and in chapter seven the prophecy is continued further into things that were going to be ha happen beyond that series of empires so so we see this in daniel and and the same technique also exists in ezekiel and in jeremiah and in other prophets it's interesting that he's shown visions as well he's not shown he's not shown writing the writing apparently that came from the fallen angels, so he's shown visions. He's he's shown images. Well, well, I, you know, a lot of the crafts were, were um, early crafts were handed down from the fallen angels, but I don't know if that necessarily makes them evil. It's the abuse of them that makes them evil. Right. I mean, I carry a knife in my pocket all the time and, and I do things like um, cut rope and 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 cut open packages and things like that. So the knife isn't evil as long as I contain its use to good purposes. But if I stab you with it, well, now the knife is evil, but it's not the knife that did the damage. It's me who's responsible for the sin. Right. So. So. <laughs> And it's, I, I don't, um, yes, writing is one of the crafts that the Enoch literature tells us came from the fallen angels, but I don't see writing itself as being evil. <laughs> However, John is given these visions and he can only relate them to us through writing. Yeah, I was just thinking Daniel then, also. I was just thinking then maybe it was just that, you know, these, these gifts that the angels gave us, it was, they were out of sequence. They were given to us before we should have had, should have had them. We should have discovered them for ourselves at, at, at the right time. And they were, they were given to us b before we were ready for them. Maybe that's the point of it. it. Even last night I spoke about Prometheus and, and I believe that the story of Prometheus did um, originate or the ideas for it did originate in that same Enoch literature describing those angels. I, I'm rather convinced of that. So it's basically a retelling of some ancient Hebrew account narrowed down to one particular individual. 
And and perhaps someday we could do a a, a series on on the parallels between paganism and and um, the Hebrew Bible and where a lot of those things really came from. Maybe that would be an interesting series in the future. Yeah, that would be good. What was that squeaking noise there? <laughs> <laughs> that's my dachshund i'm sorry well thank you for being here be. sven thank and, you and the dachshund is probably the, a good cue for the end of this program and i i don't know if you ever want a bible basics part 11 what we should do but maybe um maybe a collection of questions from the listeners can be accumulated and and they could be answered in part 11 yeah, maybe we could do something like that. It would be interesting just to look at the the early church, but I guess that's really sort of out of out of the purview of Bible basics. There, there were a couple of bits that um, I thought we didn't cover there. Uh, the, the Stone Kingdom that destroys the, uh, the the Rome, the Empire of Rome, and how that was actually the Israelites that took part in that. The the European the European nations. But the uh, well, well, then maybe we could do a survey of of the prophets and and how they. Um how how they coincide with the revelation okay okay yeah i'm up for another and, one next week and and just pick some of the high points from from um from jeremiah from hosea from from daniel and and how they line up with aspects of the new testament because they all do the new testament the prophets were christian prophets before christ so they didn't call themselves christians but they were christian they were prophesying of Christ. They were prophesying of the things that Christian people were going to suffer in the future. They weren't prophesying of Jews unless they were talking about devils and snakes and serpents and intruders and interlopers. Then they were talking about Jews. <laughs> it's that simple. Canker worms and locusts, dogs and dragons and... <laughs> owls and yes. every dirty bird yes, and sir. <laughs> <laughs> everything else yeah that'd be great yeah that'd be good thank you Sven. Appreciate thank you Bill. god bless <laughs>